Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to the Al Franken podcast ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. Hey, everybody. Uh, got a great one today, you know, for a change. And, and that's because I finally have a guest who knows what he's talking about you know i don't know who's been booking our guests but my god anyway i have adam schiff a hero of mine today he's my guest he was the impeachment manager for the first impeachment trial of donald trump the first one and i thought he did an amazing job that i um, spoke with chairman schiff uh, the day that the 80 page brief from the house managers came out and also the 18 uh, page response from Trump's lawyers, and um, I was particularly struck with with one section. Okay, now in their brief, President Trump's legal team quotes from the House managers' brief. Uh, this is what uh, the House managers wrote: "Quote in the months preceding the joint session, President Trump repeatedly issued false statements, asserting that the presidential election results." were the product of widespread fraud and should not be accepted by the American people or certified by state or federal officials. Okay, now here is the answer uh, in the president's lawyer's brief. This is their answer. Okay, listen carefully because it's a little weird. Insufficient evidence exists upon which a reasonable jurist could conclude that the 45th president's statements were accurate or not, and he therefore denies they were false. Okay, in other words, they're basically saying there's not enough evidence that exists for a reasonable jurist to conclude one way or the other <laughs> whether the president's statements about the outcome of the election were accurate or not. Okay, so they're not saying they were accurate. <laughs> they're just saying there's not enough evidence for a reasonable person to make a conclusion one way or the other, and therefore, the president denies they were false. Therefore, holy mackerel. Okay, so now basically what that means is that all the managers have to do is prove that a reasonable person would look at the president's statements about the fraudulence, for example, that, oh, Dominion counted their votes in Germany. <laughs> or that uh, Dominion switched 
you know, uh, hundreds of thousands of votes, which now even Newsmax says, no, they didn't. Uh, they, they threatened to sue us and we don't want to be sued because we know that we're wrong. And, uh, okay. And uh, our observers, uh, our poll watchers weren't allowed to watch the counting of the votes in, like in Philadelphia. And actually, they were. And I don't know if you remember this, but the judge in Philadelphia asked the Trump lawyer, finally, he just said, okay, what were the number of Trump poll watchers there? And the lawyer said, it was a non-zero number. Okay, now that means it was either a negative number or a positive number. So I think the judge concluded that it was a positive number. It was a, a real number. There could have been negative Trump people there. And then this same Trump lawyer asked the judge to let him off the case because President Trump had used him to, quote, perpetrate a crime. <laughs> that was it. <laughs> and now the number of uh, Biden lawyers who have accused Joe Biden of using them to perpetrate a crime, that is a zero number. Now, um, I am also putting out a podcast in addition to this one a little uh, later this week that is going to be my closing argument for uh, a conviction. And uh, I suppose that will change as we hear witnesses and stuff like that. But I like it. I like it, and I think you'll enjoy it. And maybe uh, be persuasive in a way that uh, maybe the House managers will use some of my argument. Maybe. Maybe. Anyway, I think you're going to really enjoy uh, my interview with Adam Schiff. I know I did, and it's just a, it's a really a great one, you know, for a change. Rakuten's Big Give Week is back with 15% cash back. It's a festival of savings at hundreds of stores, including Doc Martens, Ninja Kitchen, and Hotels.com. Prep for summer and save big on beauty, travel, electronics, and more. It's one of Rakuten's biggest cash back events, and it's on May 6th through May 13th. Join today for free and get an extra 10% cash back boost. Go to Rakuten.com or download the Rakuten app today. That's R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Shoppers get it. Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, for joining us. Well, thank you. My pleasure. I think I speak for probably every one of my listeners that we're just a little disappointed that you aren't a manager on this impeachment because I just thought you did a spectacular job in the last one. And uh, Jamie Raskin is great, and I know he, I have tremendous confidence that he'll do a great job. But I bet you everyone just wanted you to be just one of the managers, just in case. <laughs> well, thank you. Um, I think the speaker picked exactly the right team and exactly the right uh, leader, Jamie Raskin, 
he is a phenomenal constitutional scholar, uh, and I think he is going to do a masterful job. I just finished reading the House brief, uh, and it's brilliantly written, and the evidence is just overwhelming. Uh, so I think the speaker recognized that this is not you know, a sequel to the first impeachment. This is a very separate impeachment with a very different fact pattern. Uh, and uh, and I think it made sense to have a, a different group, very representative of the country, making the presentation. But I, I appreciate the uh, the vote of confidence. Of course, you have to say that. But I, I actually believe you. <laughs> I believe it's true. But I think, and I want to hear about the brief, but I, I think that uh, Congressman Raskin, I would like it if in the opening and in the closing that he would quote your closing. Uh, because your closing basically says, you all know he's going to do this again, essentially. And he did. <laughs> yes. I, I, well, I, I would have to differ with you, Al. I wouldn't recommend that he do that. Um, only for the fact that I told you so is not a particularly persuasive argument well, yeah. to the senators. But but I do agree <laughs> with you in this respect, Al. Um the the core of our argument for why he needed to be removed, if the senators found him guilty, he needed to be removed, was that, that you could tell from his character or lack of character that he was not going to change. He would go on trying to cheat in the election until he could succeed. Uh, that much was very clear. And I think the same argument applies here. If he is not disqualified from running again, um, there's every reason to expect that if he does run again, he will lie about the election. He will seek to cheat again. He will incite anger, animosity, maybe even insurrection again. Uh, and so I, I think the, the core argument is very similar. Uh, and of course, all the senators sitting in that chamber are going to be mindful that this is not the first time they're hearing this argument. Uh, but uh, you know, the, the events of the last year have demonstrated just what a continuing risk this man poses to the country. Obviously, part of the impeachment or the articles of impeachment or the what's being charged is inciting this riot what are their arguments going to be their their arguments are going to be that he literally didn't say go in and uh, storm the capitol that that's what they're going to say and that this is a first amendment issue right um, yes i mean they will begin with the argument that they think will resonate most with senators who don't want to have to confront the president and that is you don't need to confront him. You don't need to comment on his inciting of this mob. You can just say, well, we shouldn't be trying former presidents. It's unconstitutional to do so. So the defense team will try to give the senators an easy out. They will fall back on the argument. Well, even if you find that you can try him, he has a First Amendment right to say what he wants. And he didn't actually tell them uh, explicitly, I want you to attack and kill. But of course, that's not the standard here. You can abuse your power, and this president did, using your words. There's no First Amendment right for a president to violate their oath of office as long as they do it through their words. And in this case, he did it both through word and deed. What's more, the, the brief that was just filed and it's public now outlines just how extensive the course of conduct was leading up to that insurrection. Uh, and, and in all of those events and all of the agitation, all the appeals to, to violence, um, it, you know, it clearly meets the evidentiary requirements uh, for abuse of power. And 
so I, I think those arguments are all going to be unavailing uh, to to the jury that really matters uh, the most here, and that's the American people. Uh, and I, I hope that they matter to the senators as well. I think a powerful fact of this is that he went back to the White House and watched it. And what we've heard is that he was enjoying it and that he didn't do anything. If you're the president of the United States and this is happening, you immediately call the Secretary of Defense and you get the National Guard there as quickly as possible. And Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer were calling Governor Hogan of Maryland to try to get the guard there, and he couldn't get he couldn't get that permission. He just sat there, and and when he finally spoke, recorded something, it was "I love you," I and I won by a landslide. That's exactly right. And you know, if the reporting is correct, he was not only enjoying watching this mob attack the Capitol. But he was astonished that people around him weren't finding the same enjoyment uh, in watching this desecration of of our citadel of democracy. Uh, And that in and of itself uh, is an abuse of his power because he is required, uh, his oath requires him to faithfully execute his office and faithfully execute the laws. Uh, And if there are people attacking the Capitol uh, during the the certification of uh, of the election results, he is abdicating his duty, his sworn oath. Um, and, and so you see all along the way, the before leading up to the insurrection when he was trying to get election officials to help him cheat and find 11,780 votes in Georgia that don't exist, uh, to the, the events of that morning in his speech, to the continuing dereliction of duty as he's watching this violence uh, and still telling these uh, insurrectionists that he loves them. Let's talk about uh, Secretary of State of Georgia Raffensperger and and that phone call. To me, there is no question that that's impeachable. I mean, there's no question. Uh, He is basically, well, first of all, he threatened him. But also, you're right. He said 11,000, was it 780? Yes. Votes. Okay. And he literally said, one more than I need. And my question is, what was that going to look like? Is was was Raffensperger supposed to like have a press conference and announce? Uh, well, we uh, it turns out that President Trump won by one vote, and then someone says, like, was there a recount? Uh, no, uh, we we found uh, eleven thousand <laughs> seven hundred eighty votes. Yeah, it's even worse than that. It's even worse than that because, of course, they did recounts and they did them by hand. Uh, that makes it even harder for him to find, uh, you know, quote unquote, uh, these 11,780 votes that the president needed. But, you know, anyone just listening to that recording can't help but be struck by the organized crime tenor of that conversation. You know, oh, yeah. I, I certainly know as a former prosecutor that, that former prosecutors around the country listening that, uh, you know, if they've ever uh, had a case involving organized crime that involved a wiretap, this is how organized crime figures talk and you can you can hear the astonishment in the president's voice when he talks about you, you know uh, you know words to the effect of it's not like he's asking him to find millions of votes he just needs to find 11,780 i mean you know how hard can that be give that me is, a break that's, a, that's, <laughs> that's the, the tenor of he literally the said that can they play that tape during the trial oh absolutely and and one of the interesting things the trump defense team uh 
filed its reply. Um, and one of the things they, they admitted in that reply, I was kind of surprised that they did, was that that recording is authentic. So they have essentially admitted they don't contest the authenticity of the recording. Well, they're lawyers, right? And couldn't they be disbarred if they're lying? Well, they could have said um, that uh, uh, we haven't had the opportunity to examine the tapes or, or whatever. Uh, <laughs> but, you okay. know, in, in a, what in if a, they had had the opportunity to examine the tapes? <laughs> well, they, yes, they may have had that opportunity already. Uh, but uh, the other part that's really remarkable when you read the, the brief uh, answer that the defense, the Trump defense team filed today is they effectively say that we're not saying the president wasn't lying about uh, fraudulent votes. Um, we're just saying that the evidence is insufficient for a juror to conclude he was telling the truth or lying. And if, if that's the best your defense team, you mean say, if he's lying, it was OK. And if he was telling the truth, it's OK. Well, I mean, <laughs> I don't understand what they're saying. I, I think what they're saying is <laughs> the last three lawyers that got out of the defense team weren't willing to come before the Senate and repeat the president's lies about the election. And we're not really willing to do that either. So here's how we are, you know, skinning this uh, right down the middle. We're going to say, yeah, we're not saying he was lying. We're not saying he's not lying. We're just saying there's insufficient evidence for us to, to affirm what the president is saying. Okay, that sounds kind of weak. Now, they're going to argue, as you said, the first thing they're going to argue is the constitutionality of having this trial after he's left office. What is the case uh, against that? In my view, and I think that of most uh, scholars, and I don't put myself in the scholar category, this is not a close constitutional question. There are times when there are constitutional provisions that you're trying to interpret where the history may seem at odds with the text, or the text may seem at odds with the practice. In this case, the history of prior to the Constitution, the, the British history, contemporary British history, involved uh, high-ranking officials who were impeached and tried after they were out of office. So the the framers would have been aware of the British experience, and if they wished to distinguish it, they would have done so, but of course they didn't. Uh, then you look at the language of the Constitution, and the language provides two remedies. Uh, it provides removal, and it also provides a separate remedy of disqualification. And it doesn't say removal, then disqualification. It provides either of these remedies, uh, making clear that uh, the, the leaving of office doesn't moot uh, one of the remedies. And then you look at our experience since the Constitution, where we have uh, impeached and tried, for example, a Secretary of War Belknap, uh, who was impeached for corruption. Uh, he was tried in the Senate after he was out of office. Uh, and, and I should mention another textual point is that the, the Constitution provides that the Senate will have the ability to try all impeachments. Um, and this case was impeached while he was still in office. Uh, and you read that quite quite literally. Uh, and so the Senate has the power to try this impeachment. But to me, what's most compelling is, is the logic of the Constitution. And that is the, the, the abuse the framers were most concerned about was that uh, in this fledgling democracy, this experiment in self-governance, that uh, a president would seek to perpetuate themselves in office, uh, would seek to cheat in an election or thwart an election, uh, and 
stay in power. And if a president could seek to overturn an election, as this one did, uh, and if they succeed, they become president for life. And if they fail, uh, there's no repercussion because they're out of office. Uh, that would pose a continuing danger to the country. And, uh, and the founders understood that. Uh, it, it, one of the justices once wrote that the Constitution is not a suicide pact. If we were to interpret the Constitution uh, as meaning that you could seek to avoid turning over power when you lost the election, um, and there would be no repercussion if you failed, it would make the Constitution a suicide document because it would be an encouragement uh, to despotism. Uh, how much is the fact pattern of him claiming bogusly that the, 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 there was fraud? And let's remember that he said there was fraud in the one he won, that Hillary didn't really win that the popular vote there that was three million Ill illegal immigrants, and he had a commission to prove that the Kobach Commission, and they found nothing. What is the fact pattern here in terms of him lying and lying and lying, and them losing and losing and losing in court? I mean, how could the thirteen senators? That I'm focused on them, but also the House members who signed on to this uh, to not certify how how can they possibly justify that and shouldn't they be under ethics investigation you know it really is uh unjustifiable um and you know it was astonishing uh after the events of that uh morning and afternoon and i was on the house floor for uh just about all of it i was one of uh four members along with Jonah Goose and Sir Lofgren and Jamie Raskin, who the speaker had asked to help organize the opposition to this effort to decertify the election. And so I was very focused on what I was going to say and what others were saying and how I was going to rebut the arguments others were making. Even after we we heard people breaking the glass and had to, to flee the floor uh, and take shelter elsewhere, and we come back to the chamber, there's still you know, blood literally on the ground um, outside of the house where a woman had been shot and killed. Um, outside the chamber, yeah. The, 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 uh, the Republicans were right back at it, still seeking to decertify the results as if nothing had happened. And I, you know, I remember watching the images of uh, many of my colleagues who were accosted by the insurrectionists as they flew home that uh, weekend. And you know, watching some of these uh, these insurrectionists, you know, they they seem like true believers. They really thought and believed that the election was stolen. Well, these members that I serve with, they don't believe that. They know it's a big lie, and they are content, and we're content to push out that big lie for weeks and weeks, and even after this assault on the Capitol. So to me, that's unforgivable, um, and there should be uh, consequences and accountability and we're having a vigorous debate within the Democratic caucus about what those consequences should be. And, you know, they probably will uh, will and should vary depending on the culpability of the members, um, uh, something we fully don't have the facts on yet. Uh, there are uh, allegations that some of the members uh, may have helped organize uh, reconnaissance tours for insurrectionists. Uh, others, of course, spoke at that rally uh, and so it may not be a situation where the, the same accountability and remedy applies to all of them. But 
it is, uh, I think, such a gross dereliction of their own responsibilities, of their own oath of office uh, to to have engaged in this kind of deception and an incitement themselves. It's it's the reason this happened. I mean, the reason this happened, and it starts, of course, with Trump, who said even before the election, if I don't win, there will not be a peaceful transition. He said that, right? And he said that if I don't win, there's fraud. And he charged that there was fraud on election night and wee hours of the morning. And uh, the Republicans in both houses went along with this. And they went along with this for a long time. In fact, what the what Cruz and Hawley, the document they put out, the justification was that there's an unprecedented number of allegations of fraud. Well, yeah, you kept repeating them every, (laughs) you know, I mean, that's why, uh, you know, and they really, I believe there should be ethics investigations on them. I mean, listen, I don't know about Ron Johnson. Ron Johnson is not the brightest bulb I served with him. But Cruz and Hawley clerked for chief justices, right? They they knew this was bogus, but they kept pushing it out there. And I think there needs to be an ethics investigation and they need to have their emails looked at and their staff's emails and talk to their political staff under penalty of perjury. And that's what I think needs to happen. Well, I think you're uh, absolutely right about the willfulness uh, that these members displayed in both the House and Senate. Uh, they they knew exactly what they were doing. These are well-educated people. Um, they understand just the, the extraordinary fallacy of this argument that because we have been pushing out a lie and people are believing it, we now need to investigate our own lies. That's essentially the, the tautology that they were making, and, and they understand it really well. I, you know, I was struck when these events were going on, and uh, we were still in the House chamber. A couple of Republicans came up to me and said, you need to make sure they don't see you, meaning the mob. You know, I know these people. I can speak to these people. I know how to talk to these people. You can't let them see you. And I remember, you know, initially being kind of touched that they were worried about my safety. Uh, and then I was kind of infuriated and thought, you know, if you guys hadn't been lying about me for the last four years, I wouldn't need to worry about my security. None of us would. And so, I, you know, I do think that uh, we need to get to the bottom of um, just how culpable uh, members uh, have been in this catastrophe. And, it, it, and you need hearings. You need hearings on how this happened. Not that can be separate or along with their culpability, but you certainly need to have hearings on how this happened because this is I've this is unbelievably dangerous. What happened? This is sad. This is the saddest day, and also a, a Capitol police officer was killed. You know, Officer Sicknick, and you know, hit over the head with a, a fire extinguisher. I wouldn't mind Raskin saying this to them. You know. On January 6th, there was a guy here with a bare chest and paint and horns sitting in that chair, you know, and uh, there were people chanting, hang Mike Pence, hang Mike Pence, hang Mike Pence. They would not have done this if members of the House, members of the Senate kept repeating these allegations that they had to know were not true. 
You know, I, I think you're right. I mean, uh, there's no question that um, it wasn't Donald Trump alone propagating these lies. And this is really the story of the Trump presidency, which is so much of what he was able to do, so many norms he was able to break, institutions he was able to violate, the uh, independence of the Justice Department, the, the flagrant violations of the Hatch Act, having you know, uh, convention activity on the White House grounds. None of that would have been possible if Republican members had defended uh, our own institutions, but they didn't. Uh, they went along with him, sadly, every step of the way. And, and even after this, you know, this bloody rebellion, to see Kevin McCarthy make this soul-destroying pilgrimage uh, to Mar-a-Lago, uh, you know, it just, uh, it's just revolting uh, and, and, of course, dangerous. Which gets you know back to the the remedy here, um, which is disqualification. Uh, we we need two two functional parties in this country. Right now, we have one functional party and one cult of of the personality of Donald Trump. Uh, and until the Republican Party can once again become a party of of some kind of ideology, we're we're going to be plagued with this problem. And I feel my former colleagues in the Senate, some of whom I talked to on the Republican side uh, and Democratic side, but uh, some of them, I know their states, the people in their states are uh, the Republican states, the red states, and the vast majority of them are Trump people. So they're afraid. They, they know that if they go against Trump, they will be primaried because they're not going to lose to a Democrat. And um, that's, uh, you know, there isn't a lot of principle there, of course, but this is so dangerous to our, our country. All right, we're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back with Chairman Adam Schiff. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset, hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way. Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. What is the atmosphere like since January 6th in the House? What is your relationship? I can't imagine what the relationships are like, what the feelings are there, you know, colleague to colleague across party lines. Well, uh, it's very, very tense. You know, people are, are not only just apoplectic about what uh, our Republican colleagues did, uh, but they're very concerned uh, over their safety. They continue to be concerned over their safety. I mean, we now serve with a member who's advocated violence against other members of Congress. And we have other members who want to bring guns on the House floor. And 
uh, and, and traffic in QAnon and other crazy conspiracy theories. Look, on the Intelligence Committee, um, and this is the dilemma that I think we all face, a majority of the Republicans on my committee voted to continue the efforts to overturn the election even after the insurrection. That's a majority of the members, Republican members of the Intelligence Committee. Uh, and of course, the, the ranking member is Devin Nunes. And so I have to try to figure out how do I get the work of the committee done, which is really important. Uh, we have to make sure that the intelligence agencies are doing what they should do and have the resources that they need and are following the law and observing civil liberties and privacy. And that requires constant oversight, it requires legislation. And yet, you know, it's, it's really difficult to uh, work with people who uh, have uh, demonstrated uh, a willingness to overturn a democratic election because it was the president of their party who has a cult-like following among their base. I think all of us are wrestling with this. How do we, how do we reconcile the need to get the work done uh, but also the, the the culpability of these Republicans and and what's befallen our country. And uh, you know, I, I find myself often thinking about how the rest of the world must view us. And among the most painful things uh, is the realization that around the world, um, the, the the very idea of what America stands for has been so tarnished uh, to the point where there's a military coup in Myanmar. And they're using the same language uh, of rigged elections as Donald Trump to justify that coup. Um, this is now what America has uh, held up as an example, and uh, and it just uh, just kills me. Uh, let me ask you: You're uh, chairman of, of intelligence. Uh, can President Biden just take away security briefings from former President Trump? Yes, and and I I think <laughs> without question he should. Uh, it'll be up to the discretion of the president, and I think he uh, will be consulting with the director of national intelligence about it. But um, there's certainly no need for Donald Trump to have access to intelligence, and there's every concern that he would either betray that intelligence uh, knowingly or unwittingly, um, uh, or he would make use of that intelligence uh, to enrich himself uh, in some way. Really, you think he'd do that? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> of I'm, course. I'm of getting course. cynical in my old age, I guess. No, that's believe me, that's not cynical. That's realistic. Uh, you you did mention uh, refer to Marjorie uh, Taylor Greene. You know, she said the Rothschilds started the. Uh, California wildfires here from your California uh, with uh, lasers right from space and it was Soros wasn't it I mean it was Jews uh, but it was Soros wasn't it I mean you and I know that we're Jewish and we know our cabal did that it is how crazy I mean what's going on are is Republicans aren't going to allow her to be thrown thrown out you need two-thirds right to yeah. get someone yeah. out no, I, I mean, the, the, Donald Trump is embracing her. Uh, Kevin McCarthy, uh, you know, the, the most he's willing to say is that he will talk with her. Um, well, you know, that's about that's worth less than nothing. Um, but the, the, I think you all you need to know about the Republican Party um, in 2021 is that a woman who believes 
that um, there's a Jewish space-based laser conspiracy to set wildfires, that um, horrific shootings at places like Parkland were fake and staged, uh, and that that uh, violence should be used against members of Congress that she disagrees with. Um, all you need to know about the state of the Republican Party is that that woman was put by Kevin McCarthy and the Republican leadership on the Education Committee, uh, the committee that uh, is responsible for our education system at the federal level. And and, and she has signed on to the idea that Sandy Hook and Parkland were both false flags, right? right? Yep. Yep. And she, you know, my lord, you know, that, that of course there's that footage of her dogging after one of the victims of Parkland and heckling him. Um, this is this is who they want on the education committee. Well, maybe it's possible they could get her off that committee, uh, do what they did to Steve King. But I don't know. I don't know. I just, I, I, you know, I enjoyed being in the Senate. <laughs> maybe, maybe with her space-based laser theory, they'll put her on the science committee. Yeah. Uh, although uh, Ted Cruz, who's on like the committee that oversees NASA, was really mad at NASA for looking down because uh, <laughs> they use satellites to measure stuff for like global warming and weather and stuff like that. And he said the the whole purpose of NASA was to explore space. And he didn't like the fact that they were using it to look down at Earth. I'm not kidding. No, hey, look, uh, Mo, Mo, Mo Brooks, <laughs> Do you remember that? Uh, Mo Brooks, who was one of the <laughs> you know leading speakers at the at the, the mob rally, I think he is on the science committee and he once said that he thought sea level rise uh, was occurring because rocks were falling into the ocean. Mm-hmm. Um, to, to, to which I, I could only conclude that we're clearly taking the, the, the uh, knowledge of the members of that committee too much for granted. Yeah, that's a lot of rocks. Okay. I want to, I want to bring up something which um, I'm going to play some uh, clips from the debate from the first impeachment. And I have a, a, a bit of a bone to pick, uh, and the, the Senate and the House are different. And w- it's the way you guys debate. And I'm not criticizing the rules. I'm thinking that the manager of the debate should do something strategic. And I'll I'll talk about this, as uh, Brian Williams says, on the other side. But I'm going to play a few. First, I'm going to play Doug Collins. And this is him uh, speaking against uh, the impeachment of Trump the first time on, of course, the Ukraine thing. So let's let's play that. When they can't make their argument that the president pressured the Mr. Zelensky, they then attack Mr. Zelensky. And then say that he was pressured when Mr. Zelensky on numerous occasions, he said, I have not been pressured. I'm not being used. I have no, the call was fine. I'm not paying pressure to do anything. Then here's what the majority is saying. The majority is saying Mr. Zelensky is a liar. And we in this body, the Democrats, are tearing down a world leader in the eyes of those that don't like him in his own country and Russia who is attacking him. Now, here's the bone. Uh, the manager, and were you the manager of this debate? Uh, yes. And this happened in this one, but but I'm going to play some more of these. They repeat the same talking points over and over again. And my feeling is, and maybe going forward, the same thing happened on this one. 
you, I know everyone wants to speak. I know everyone wants their turn. And I think this would allow that. And you would recognize someone for 30 seconds or a minute or 90 seconds. But my feeling is that going forward, you should have somebody whose job it is every time they bring up baloney like this. And of course, the reason Zelensky didn't say he was pressured was that he relied. Ukraine relies on the United States and they relies on Trump. You know that. I know that. Everybody knows that. And they brought it up over and over again. I'm going to play uh, Kelly Armstrong from North Dakota doing the same kind of thing. So we have the alleged, alleged victim of quid pro quo, bribery, extortion, whatever we're dealing with now today, repeatedly and adamantly shouting from the rooftops that he never felt pressure, that he was not the victim of anything. So in order for this whole thing to stick, we have to believe that President Zelensky is a pathological liar. Okay, so there must have been 10 who made the same argument. Why not have a point person who handles that argument? And then every time they do it, go to that person and say, and by, by the fourth time, they can do it in 15 seconds. Uh, okay, this is the sixth time you've done this. You know that Zelensky had to say that he wasn't pressured because he's relying on the United States for aid. C could you guys structure it like uh, yeah, that we going we, forward? We certainly could. Um, you mentioned the challenge uh, at the outset, which is on an issue like impeachment, practically every member of the House wants to be able to uh, express their views and have it be part of the congressional record. and. Uh, be able to tell their constituents, uh, this is what I had to say, this is what I believe. Uh, and so what we uh, tried to do then, uh, and I think, I can't remember who was managing the time uh, at that particular point uh, on the floor, but we would have several of us, myself uh, and, and others who uh, would end up being managers, uh, would rebut these arguments. We didn't necessarily rebut them every single time they were made. Because uh, in addition to rebutting what they say, we want to make the affirmative case. And if you spend all your time rebutting what the other side is saying, you're not spending time affirmatively making your case. But, but yes, I'm sure we could do it more effectively, um, but it would require members to relinquish their opportunity to speak. And, and as you know, there's almost nothing more difficult than getting a member to relinquish their opportunity to speak. Or every member could know the argument and put it on the top of their speech. Because to me, it was very frustrating to watch this. And the same thing happened this time. I was going to play a couple others, but I, I don't need to. You know what I'm yeah. saying. And what I'm saying is scorn and ridicule has its place. And these guys deserve that for just over and over again, repeating talking points that were completely bogus. Okay, enough of that, right? I hear you. I hear you. And, you know, and, and you know, I think that uh, we we did something um, very similar to what you're suggesting, Al, uh, in our effort to oppose the, the decertification that day, January 6th, on the floor. Because what we did is, with respect to each of the state challenges that we anticipated and the two that they made, we began with the four of us that I mentioned making the overarching arguments. Um, we then had the members of the state delegation uh, make the, the state-specific points to rebut what the Republicans were saying about the lawsuits in those states and why they thought the lawsuits were improperly dispensed with. 
Uh, so we did have much more immediate rebuttals. Uh, and then the four of us would do a, a final overarching rebuttal so that we could put all the arguments in context. So I think if you watched that debate, you probably would have been more uh, pleased with, with how it was organized. Oh, here's another frustration of mine. I this I, I want to go to the Mueller report and what they kept saying about the Mueller report and just get your reaction to two, uh, Phil Rose, uh, also from that debate, and also Brad Winstrup. So we'll go with Phil Rowe first. For two years, we've been told that then-candidate Donald Trump colluded with Russians to interfere with our elections. Two years, millions of dollars spent on the Mueller investigation. No collusion. You'd think after being that wrong, Democrats would finally decide to work on the problems that the American people sent us here to do. You'd be wrong again. Okay, and uh, here's Brad Winstrup. The refusal to accept the election results and later the findings of the Mueller investigation have brought forth articles of impeachment that are negated by two simple facts. Namely, the military aid to Ukraine was provided and no investigation was ever started. The real offense is that the president uh, won the election. Okay, you want to take that one? Well, you know, and and this, you know, shows the power of the presidential bully pulpit because he would repeat that falsehood of no collusion, no obstruction ad infinitum, uh, and members of Congress would repeat it, and it would be repeated uh, in the Fox uh, News bubble. uh, And that's a very powerful thing to try to overcome but you know when we when we do address that uh, the facts are very clear and powerful on the issue of collusion uh, after all you had the russians writing to the president's son and saying you know we uh, have dirt that we can provide you um, on hillary clinton as part of the russian government's effort to help the trump campaign and don junior's reaction was well if it's what you say it is we would love it and the best timing is in late summer and they set up the secret meeting to get the dirt, and then they lie about the meeting, they say it never happened, and then they say it was about adoption. Uh, and of course, all of that is evidence of collusion. Uh, the fact that the Russians um, uh, were meeting, uh, an agent of the Kremlin, Konstantin Kalimnik, is meeting with Paul Manafort, the Trump campaign manager, uh, and Manafort is giving him internal campaign polling data at a time when the Russians are using a targeted social media operation to help the Trump campaign. That is really collusion. That's basically giving them the internal polling. And so the Russians then are doing their uh, operation in St. Petersburg and targeting Americans. They're using the Facebook data to target every African-American in Milwaukee and in Philadelphia and Detroit. And they're sending them, you know, uh, Hillary saying super predators and that really had an effect on the election and that is him giving internal polling on those states right those are the four states and minnesota i guess pennsylvania michigan uh, wisconsin and minnesota that he gave them and also stone was uh working with uh, wikileaks well and, and of course there's a lot more even before I think anyone, uh, and certainly before anyone in the public was aware that the Russians had hacked uh, the DNC, the Russians, through this cutout, Professor Mafsud, tell the Trump campaign uh, advisor, George Papadopoulos, that they've got this dirt on Hillary that they can begin anonymously releasing. 
which is exactly what they do. And of course, the very day that Donald Trump says publicly, hey, Russians, if you're listening, uh, hack Hillary's emails. Later that day, they attempt to hack Hillary's emails. And so, uh, Al, you're absolutely right. Uh, the, you know, the evidence of collusion was in plain sight, has been in plain sight for a long time. But overcoming the, 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 the presidential bully pulpit amplified uh, his lies, amplified by members of Congress and amplified by Fox and Breitbart is a powerful force. And, you know, we saw that powerful force uh, attack Mueller and the Mueller report, uh, but also we saw that push out these lies about the election uh, uh, with the same, you know, culpable members of Congress that you just played clips from pushing out the same lies the president was about about the, the uh alleged fraud in the election. You know, I understand, obviously, the bully pulpit and uh, tweets and all that stuff. And thank God he can't tweet anymore, at least now. Uh, but I, on page two of the Mueller report, they said, in evaluating whether uh, evidence about collective action of multiple individuals constituted a crime, we applied the framework of conspiracy, not the concept of collusion. And so this is a lie. They um, <laughs> they didn't make that uh, at all. They didn't make that, you know, collusion is not a legal term, right? That's exactly right. That's exactly right. Uh, and Mueller made that point, you know, as you point out, uh, in the very beginning of the report, because he knew that uh, Trump would try to distort uh, what he was saying. There's a big difference between saying you can prove beyond a reasonable doubt the elements of conspiracy uh, and saying that someone uh, engaged in immoral, unethical, uh, unpatriotic conduct of collusion. And when you get to that Trump Tower meeting where the, the, the president's son and son-in-law and campaign manager are secretly meeting of the Russian delegation, uh, the reason why Mueller said that he didn't indict that as conspiracy, because conspiracy requires an agreement and an overt act and furtherance of the agreement. And here you had Don Jr. agreeing with the Russians to get dirt, something that's illegal under campaign laws from a foreign government. Uh, and the overt act is that meeting in Trump Tower. Uh, the reason Mueller says he didn't feel he could charge that uh, as a conspiracy is that he didn't know what value to place on the dirt they got during the meeting. Uh, and he said that Don Jr. didn't have experience in presidential campaigns, so maybe he didn't know what he was doing was a crime. But two flaws with, with that reasoning by Mueller is he makes no mention of Paul Manafort, uh, who had lots of experience with presidential campaigns. And would have known and did know. He was I'm, at that sure. meeting. Yeah. It was at that meeting. But more than that, it's not the objective value of the dirt you get. Uh, it's the subjective value. It's how much you believe it's worth. And the president clearly believed that the, that the emails, if he could get them, would be worth a lot. He talked about the ones that WikiLeaks published over 100 times in the campaign trail. Uh, so that was one of the, the weakest parts of the Mueller report. But but notwithstanding that, um, what you say is exactly right, Al, which is there's a difference between whether you can prove to a jury beyond reasonable doubt the elements of the crime of conspiracy uh, and whether a president has acted um, immorally, unethically, unpatriotically, corruptly to try to get foreign help to, in an election. By, By colluding. colluding. You know, again, colluding. He, they colluded. They colluded. What Manafort with passing off polling data to a 
Russian agent. That's well, colluding. I, I, I have to tell you about a, an experience I had at an airport. And, uh, you know, as I'm sure you have, uh, I've got some most vigorous feedback in airports uh, over the years. I'm in North Carolina. I'm waiting for a, an Uber. And the guy comes up to me and he says, uh, you're Adam Schiff, right? And I said, yes. He says, can I ask you a question? And you can tell me the truth. But there, there's nothing to this collusion stuff, is there? Uh, and I said, let me ask you a question. What if I told you that the Russians approached the Hillary Clinton campaign, uh, approached Chelsea Clinton and said, we've got dirt on Donald Trump that we will offer you as part of the Russian government's effort to help the Clinton campaign. Uh, and Chelsea said, well, I would love that. And best time would be in the late summer. Uh, and Chelsea arranged a meeting in the Brooklyn headquarters of the Clinton campaign. And John Podesta was there and they met with the Russian delegation. Uh, and then and then they lied about it and said it never happened. Would you call that collusion? And he says, I think I know where you're going here. And I said, well, let me ask you one other thing. Let's say that that Susan Rice as the national security advisor was secretly talking to the Russian ambassador to try to undermine bipartisan sanctions over Russian interference in the election and then was lying about it. Would you say that she was colluding with the Russians? And he says, you know something? I probably would. And, and I said, Eureka, if I could just talk to 100 million more people at the airport, you know, that I think we can find common ground here. Boy, that was so frustrating that and, and Barr, I think, was largely responsible for spreading that no collusion thing. Oh, yeah. You know, a, a jury foreman has never said, Your Honor, we find the defendant guilty of being in cahoots. It's not a legal yeah. term. Right. And and collusion is not your. And you're absolutely right about Bill Barr. Robert Caro once wrote that power doesn't corrupt as much as it reveals. Um, and power revealed who Bill Barr is. And he was willing to destroy the independence of the Justice Department to serve uh, his master. Now, even he got to a point where he could go no further, but he went a long distance to destroying the independence, the reputation. What do you think it was? Because he surely went very far in the direction he went. I guess he did the couple things that Trump was mad at him about was not announcing some, uh, an investigation of Hunter Biden, not doing a, a, a Comey like 11 days before the election. Uh, he's mad at that. What happened? Why did Barr? He, it seemed like he he, he just stopped before the finish line. Uh, well, look, I, I think I think when you look at all of these uh, characters who were drawn uh, to debase themselves for a seat at Donald Trump's table. Some carried on right until the end, like Mark Meadows. There was just nothing the president uh, could ask him to do that Mark Meadows wasn't willing to do. Others fell off along the way. Um, they got to the point where they did as much as they could do, but they could go no further. Uh, Bill Barr carried on for a really long distance, misleading the country about the Mueller report, telling Justice Department uh, Officials, they could uh, investigate voter fraud when he knew there wasn't any. Uh, disagreeing with the inspector general report when the inspector general report came out and said that the Russia investigation was properly predicated, that is, it was properly begun. He violated department policy by openly disagreeing without a basis to do so. But even he got to a point where he could go no further. Now, maybe it was just personal pique. Maybe he just got offended that the president was criticizing him and said the hell with it. But he had a very high tolerance for disreputable and damaging conduct, um, and it will take the department a long time to recover from 
from his disastrous leadership. Well, I think Merrick Garland can start that process. I can't think of a a better person uh, to do it. I, I, you? You're absolutely right. I think he was a perfect pick. But but I do think it will have a long tail nonetheless, because uh, in talking with prosecutors in other parts of the country, people are, are going into the court now and saying, this case would not have been brought against my client, either A, if he was a friend of the president, like, like Flynn or Roger Stone, uh, or conversely saying that this is being brought against my client for a political reason. And they only have to cite, you know, Bill Barr's conduct of the Justice Department. And there are going to be a lot of jurors who are now very skeptical uh, because of what Bill Barr did during his tenure. Or that could cut both ways, right? Yeah. Or is this grand jury? Are we talking about juries? Or well, grand it, juries? it really could uh, affect both. So, so that's U.S. attorneys going into uh, in the court or their office going into court? Is that what you're yes. saying? Yes. In other words, you know, someone is charged with a crime um, and maybe there's a, a colorable argument now that a defense counsel can make that because of their political views, uh, they're being persecuted by the Justice Department. Or they, they would get favorable treatment if they if they had a connection to the president the way other people have. And it's unfair that they should be charged. I mean, let's say you're charged with uh, lying uh, under oath. Well, you could just point to Roger Stone and say, you know, the president of the United States, Donald Trump, said this is this was this is a bogus charge. This is just a process crime. You know, uh, it's meaningless. And he got a pass. Why should I get a pass? Yeah, first he commuted and he got a pardon, yeah. right, in the yeah. end. Also, Barr, and this was right after uh, the impeachment vote to acquit, immediately, uh, kind of following up on what you said, which is, you know he's going to do this again. Immediately, the bar tried to put pressure on pro the prosecutors for Stone to reduce the sentence. And that was frightening. Uh, oh, uh, when you think of the course of conduct regarding Roger Stone, um, the intervention to try to reduce the sentence, and then that's not enough. Then it's the commutation, and that's not enough, and then it's a pardon. And what makes that case unique, as opposed to thousands and thousands of other cases in the country? Only one thing. This was somebody lying for the president. Otherwise, there's no way that the attorney general was going to intervene in a, in a case of uh, lying under oath. Now, the only reason Bill Barr got involved, the only reason Donald Trump got involved is that this was a man utterly devoted to Donald Trump, willing to lie or do anything else for him. And, um, and, and it's hard to imagine a, a more frontal assault on the rule of law than that. Well, not only willing to lie for him, but basically, if not given a commutation, <laughs> maybe willing to talk. Yes, there's that too. There's that too, and and, <laughs> and and really floating these pardons is that's not in the brief, is it for the impeachment? No, uh, it isn't. Mm -hmm. um, you know, if the brief were going to include uh, the the whole catalog, Everything. it would have been <laughs> eight thousand pages, not eighty. Yeah, it would have been like uh, we can't do that between now and then. You know, um, well. Uh, Thank, well, thank you. Thank you. Really great talking to you. Uh, and you take care. Stay healthy. Well, I, I hope you enjoyed uh, listening. That beautiful music is by Leo Kotke, the great Leo Kotke. 
I want to thank Peter Ogburn for producing this podcast. We'll talk again next week. Hey, Prime members, you can listen to the Al Franken podcast ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. Or you can listen ad-free with Wondery Plus in Apple Podcasts. Before you go, tell us about yourself by completing a short survey at Wondery.com survey. Once upon a beat. Remember those stories and fables that would capture your imagination and you couldn't wait to see how they would unfold? And now, when you read them as an adult, you think some of these old tales could use a fresh spin. We have a perfect podcast to bring you the stories you remember, remix, and reimagine for the kids in your life today. Join me, DJ Fuse, and my trusty turntable, Baby Scratch, as we spin up new tales in the New Kids and Family Podcast, Once Upon a Beat. Wondry and Tinkercast are bringing you a jam-packed, music-filled weekly party where hip-hop and fables meet. It's Once Upon a Beat. Follow Once Upon a Beat on the Wondry app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to Once Upon a Beat early and ad-free right now by joining Wondry Plus in the Wondry app or Wondry Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Once Upon a Beat. The early 2000s was a wild time for reality TV. There seemed to be an endless supply of shows that delivered entertainment for us, but trauma for children. I'm Misha Brown, the host of Wondery's podcast, The Big Flop. Each week on The Big Flop, comedians join me to chronicle the biggest pop culture fails of all time and try to answer the age-old question, who thought this was a good idea? We recently looked behind the scenes of what was really going on at Abby Lee Miller's dance studio. Abby's biggest misstep wasn't screaming nonsensical catchphrases or throwing chairs on television, but instead, she was choreographing financial fraud in plain sight. Join me to break down all the wild details of Abby Lee Miller's story. Follow The Big Flop on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to The Big Flop early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery+. Plus.